0: Well, take your Bibles and turn back to John, uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, and we're going to dive back in where we left off last week in verses 31, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 47, and the title that I've given to th- today's message is Slaves of Sin and Sons of Satan, and uh, I really didn't think about it until I saw it in the bulletin after it was printed, I said, well, that's not a very seeker-friendly like title, you know? That's not really how to build a big church and gather a crowd if you're going to be talking about slaves of sin and sons of Satan, but that's really uh, straight uh, from the lips of Jesus himself, and so I feel like we're on safe ground. I didn't make it up. It wasn't my idea. I just took it from the text that we're going to look at this morning, and we know that in the last uh, few Sundays, we've been... Uh, seeing Jesus engaged in this verbal smackdown, if you will, with the Jewish religious leaders during the annual Feast of Booths. Um, he has already accused them of breaking the law of Moses uh, by plotting to kill him. They, uh, he's accused them of judging him and others superficially and self-righteously, we looked at that classic story of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, he accused them of walking in the darkness, of being worldly, of not knowing God, of not being able to get to heaven, but rather dying in their sin and going to hell. And so the more he confronted them, the more hostile they became uh, to him. But rather than backing off or lightening up his message, Jesus became even more direct and even more forceful in his charges against them. And as if what he already said wasn't enough in the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus not only implied that they were slaves of sin, but what's even worse, he identified them as sons of Satan. Uh, By the way, those are two charges that you never want to be accused of. You never want to be accused of being a slave of sin or a son of Satan. And yet, many people, not just outside the church, but even inside the church, I think are guilty of these two things. And so we're going to look at these two charges that Jesus made against the Jewish people and the Jewish, particularly the Jewish religious leaders, that they were slaves of sin and they were sons of Satan. And again, all of this that we're going to look at uh, and have been looking at most likely occurred either on the last day of the Feast of Booze or the day or so after the celebration was over. and In the midst of uh, this great celebration and uh, this widespread unbelief and rejection uh, that uh, many of the leaders, uh, in the way they responded to Jesus, there was this ray of hope that many Jews believed in him. Verse 30, we left off here last week as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And while some of these People uh, John records uh, here or talks about in in, in verse 30 may have truly been born again. Based on Jesus' discussion with them uh, following their profession of faith, it's obvious that many of them were not true believers. You say, Well, how can you believe in Jesus and not be a true believer? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, That's a huge issue in the church today. In fact, I think that is the issue in the church today. And uh, John has addressed this a number of times already in this gospel. In fact, in John chapter 2, he said this, verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. In other words, There were many who were claiming to believe in Jesus, but he wasn't believing in them. In chapter 6, this is what John records in verse uh, 64. Jesus said, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning whom they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. She so was like, Wait a minute, I thought disciples were like faithful disciples. Well, not necessarily. Uh, That If there's disciples, followers, people that were following Jesus around, and they're leaving him, and they're not walking with him anymore, we can conclude that they were not true disciples. And uh, really, this comes to a head here in these first couple of verses, uh, in, in verses 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are, what's the word there? Truly disciples of mine. And so Jesus wanted to be perfectly clear regarding the conditions for following him. And he, again, makes a distinction here between true disciples and not true disciples or false disciples. And notice what he says. He says, if you're a true disciple, you continue in my word. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. That phrase, continue in my word, is critical here. It means to continually abide or habitually obey the teaching of Jesus, living a life of obedience to Christ. What was the Great Commission? Remember Matthew, uh, tw- uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go and make disciples of what? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The implication there is that somebody got saved and so they need to get baptized, but then you just leave them wet, right? You just, they get baptized you say, hey... I'm glad I met you, glad I got to lead you to Christ, glad you're baptized. And then you move on to somebody else. What's the next phrase? Teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded them. And so there's an aspect of discipleship, following Christ. It's not just coming to know Christ, but it's also obeying Christ and continuing in Christ. Uh, Some think, well, I've, I've, I've come to know Christ But the question is, are you continuing in Christ? It's not enough just to come to Christ. You need to continue in Christ. And I think that a life of obedience to the truth of God's word is the premier evidence that a person is truly saved. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Notice here in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, verse 15. This was a a theme throughout this Gospel, John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verses 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Chapter 15, verse 10 If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And then we know that this is not the only book of the Bible that John wrote. He also wrote three epistles, right? First, second, and third John. And he continues this theme in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him. In other words, he's about to tell us how we can know for sure that we've come to know Jesus Christ. How do you know? If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him, the one who says he abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And how did Jesus walk? He walked in obedience, right, to his heavenly Father. And so, all that to say, a true Christian perseveres in their relationship with Jesus Christ. They continue in His Word. It's not just, a, I, I, I made a decision you know, when I was uh, you know, 12 years old, and, and I've never really uh, followed the Lord after that. But I know I'm saved because I threw a stick in the fire, and I prayed a prayer, and I signed a card. And my parents always tell me that's when I got saved. But you've never really once lived a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe some of your testimony is, and and, uh, I've met many of you that have this testimony, uh, that you made some kind of profession of faith when you were a child or a young person, uh, but there was never really any evidence uh, of a life of obedience until maybe you turned 30 or maybe you got married or had your first child and God used something or a crisis in your life, and that's when your life changed. That's when you began to live a life of obedience. I would say, based on the authority of God's word, you didn't get saved when you were 12, you got saved when you were 30. And that's sometimes hard for us to grasp, but you have to go back to the Scriptures and and say, hey, if you don't know for sure, right, when you got saved, go with what the Bible says. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, right? And and here is a continuance of obedience. Now that's not to say, listen carefully, I don't want you to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, uh, that's not to say that a a true Christian, a true disciple of Christ uh, will never backslide from time to time they'll never struggle with sin or or have 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 some sinful habits that they're struggling through and and seeking to mortify but i don't think a true christian can ever permanently walk away from christ and just punt the faith again a, a true christian doesn't obey god's word perfectly but they obey it consistently. There, there's a pattern of obedience in their life. Now, again, let me balance out what Jesus is saying here, and I appreciate what William McDonald said in his Believer's Bible commentator, Commentary. He said this, quote there, that these people, we're, we're not saying that we're saved by abiding in his word, but we abide in his word because we're saved. Let me say that again. We're not saved by abiding in his word, but we abide in his word because we're saved. And so the point is, as we as we study Christ's words, he helps us through the Holy Spirit, which he sent to help us grasp the word's meaning and apply it to our lives. We know that from John chapter 16, verse 13. Listen to what he says here. He says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And so the Spirit of God is, is helping us know the Word of Christ. And the more we know his word, and the more we put it into practice in our lives, the more we'll experience freedom from sin. Notice what he goes on to say, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In other words, you will no longer be mastered by sin. You will have a new master, and that is Jesus Christ. Years ago, I read a book called How to Say No to a Stubborn Habit by Erwin Lutzer. It's a great book, and I'll never forget it. It had a huge impact in my life in in, in the early days when I I was growing as a a new believer. And uh, I'll never forget an illustration he used... Uh, of of a landlord, somebody living in an apartment, you're living in an apartment complex and you have this just mean, evil, nasty landlord who just comes into your, just kind of busts into your apartment and he just goes up to your refrigerator and he pulls out whatever he wants. He goes, sits on the couch. He just makes a mess of the place. He just goes around trashing stuff in your apartment and then he sends you a bill and he expects you to pay for the damages. And so you get fed up with this guy and say, I ain't going to live here anymore. So you go and you move down the road and and you're in a new apartment complex. And a few days later, you hear a knock on the door and it's your old landlord. And he says, hey, how you doing? I want to come in. I want to see what you got in the fridge. I want to see your new place. And you say, no, I'm sorry. I don't live at your apartment anymore, right? I have a new landlord. You're no longer my landlord. I don't have to do anything you tell me to do. And, of course, that's a great example, right, that when we come to Christ, we have a new landlord, and Satan comes a-knocking, right, and and he wants to continue to engage us and and get us to, 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 to sin and to do damage in our lives, and we say, no, I'm sorry, I've got a new landlord. I've got a new master. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do what you want me to do. And so Jesus promised here that anyone who knows and lives out the truth of his word will not only experience freedom from sin... But with everything that goes along with that, right, death and hell will be rescued, will be delivered, will be saved. And so these two verses, really, verses 31 and 32, uh, are pivotal in understanding true salvation. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Someone said this, Saving faith is not fickle, but firm and settled. Such maturity expresses itself in full commitment to the truth in Jesus Christ, resulting in genuine freedom. I was tempted to just kind of park here uh, at verses 31 and 32 and just go off on this expression. If you continue in my words, then you are truly disciples of mine. Because as I said, I think this is the issue in the church today. There's a whole lot of people claiming to be Christians, right? With zero evidence in their lives um, of of being believers. Because they're, they're not continuing in the word. They're not living a life of obedience to the word of God. Well, notice How these people responded. It says they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, verse 33, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, some say that these people who are responding here may be those unbelieving Jewish leaders who had opposed Jesus throughout this entire conversation. Uh, Or again, it may refer to these Jews who had professed faith in Christ. But now we're beginning to see that it maybe wasn't genuine saving faith, it was mere mental assent, it wasn't a true heart commitment to Christ, because when they start hearing uh, some of the conditions for following Christ, they kind of bow up a little bit. they got to take a step back. And they immediately resent Jesus' reference to being freed. And they're like, listen, we're, we're the descendants of Abraham. We haven't been a slave to anybody, Ever. Apparently, their, um, their pride in their ancestry as descendants of Abraham blinded them right, to the fact that they had been in bondage many times in the past, right? I mean, this is obviously not true that the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt, they had been oppressed by the Philistines during the days of the judges, they had been exiled in Assyria, they had been exiled in Babylon, and now they were presently in bondage to Rome. And what's worse, they were in bondage to sin and to Satan, and they didn't even realize it. Warren Wiersbe says this, quote, the worst bondage is the kind that the prisoner himself does not recognize. He thinks he is free, yet he really is a slave. The Pharisees and other religious leaders thought that they were free, but actually they were enslaved in terrible spiritual bondage to sin and Satan. They would not face the truth, and yet it was the truth alone that could set them free. Notice where Jesus goes next regarding this subject of freedom. He says, "You want to talk about freedom?" All right, I'll talk about freedom. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin." But we know that all of us are born by nature slaves to sin. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. There's nothing else that we can do. We are sinners. We don't, we don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're slaves to sin. We, we can't obey God. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. And, so the, and, and really, the pattern of our life just, just proves that, right? That if we habitually commit sin... We're acknowledging that we are a slave to sin. And again, the idea here is is practicing sin on a continuous basis rather than an occasional lapse into sin. Big difference here, okay? There's there's practicing sin on a continuous basis, and there's an occasional lapse into sin. The latter of which we think we believe, right? I believe the Scripture teaches that Christians, believers, sin. We still sin. We still struggle with sin. We still battle with sin. And we're seeking to mortify sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice the, the, this imagery of, of, of slavery to sin. It's not um, exclusive to Christ. Paul picked up on this imagery in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's point is simply this, that when Christ died on the cross, he not only paid the penalty for our sin, but he also broke the power of sin in our lives. And those who receive the free gift of salvation in Christ, not only will never have to pay the penalty for our sin, but we will no longer have sin have power over us. Sin will no longer have power over us. In other words, we don't have to sin anymore. How cool is that? I mean, you think about that. That's all we ever could do, but when you come to Christ, he changes everything, and you no longer have to sin. You say, well, why do I sin then? Well, Romans chapter 6 earlier, if you're still there, just look back a few verses. Uh, Paul tells us in verse 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, he says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Jesus died. Jesus died. To break the power of sin in our lives. We don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. For he who has died is freed from sin. And when we come to faith in Christ, it's as if we die with Christ. And so we're no longer uh, slaves. We're freed. The chains of sin have fallen off. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. My wife and I picked up a phrase a number of years ago from another preacher, and whenever we are exposed to something that might tempt us, something that we would desire and uh, know that it's not good for us, Uh, even things that aren't inherently sinful, right? But we say the expression, I'm dead to that. I'm I'm dead to that brownie. I'm dead to that whatever. Whatever. New dress, I'm dead to that. Whatever it is that, that you know you're being tempted by uh, and, and it wouldn't be the right thing to do at that moment and, and let's even talk about sin. So nothing wrong with eating a brownie, nothing wrong with buying a new dress, but there's obviously things that are, uh, that are, that are sinful and you have to say, listen, I'm dead to that. I'm dead to you. Uh, you no longer have power over me. And yet so, so often we, we live as slaves of sin. In fact, I was looking at another verse I didn't put in my notes, but it stuck in my mind because I wrote it down in a little post-it on my desk because I didn't want to forget this one because it was so convicting. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So what overcomes you? What do you give into? Right? Well, whatever it is, right? You just do a quick evaluation in your life. That that one thing that you constantly give into, you can't you can't seem to get past. Uh, you always give into that. Well, guess what? The Bible says that you're a slave to it. Just to kind of give you a little something to work on, right, this week, right? What what is it that overcomes me? What do I give in to? I don't want to be a slave to anything. Well, back in John chapter 8, Jesus continues to develop this. Um, concept of being a slave of sin. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever. And I think Jesus may have had in mind here the, the two sons of Abraham, right? They wanted to continue to talk about uh, being Abraham's descendants. And so he, he talked about, he was maybe thinking about Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Um, we know that Ishmael was not the true son He was considered a slave and was ultimately cast out of the house, right? Whereas Isaac was the true son and he enjoyed the blessing as the true son. Um, I think what Jesus is simply saying here is a slave may live in the master's house and enjoy some of the blessings and benefits, but because he's not a member of the family, he has no permanent status. He has no guarantee of the future. He has no security. He could get kicked out at any time. You say, I don't want to be a slave. I want to be a son. I want to have the status of a son. How does that happen? Well, Jesus makes all the difference. Verse 36, so if the son makes you free, you will be free. What? Indeed. Jesus is the true son of God, and he alone can change your status from a slave to sin to a son of God. I love how Paul describes this transformation uh, from going from a slave to a son. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, saying or crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, than an heir through God. He goes on in chapter 5, Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore, keeping, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject unto a yoke of slavery. Listen, God, Christ came to set us free from sin and, and free from legalism, trying to, trying to earn our own salvation through our own good works, keeping a bunch of rules and, and, and religious uh, rituals, And he says, listen, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back under bondage. Don't don't go to Satan and say, here, lock me up again. I like that. No, don't even go there. Don't give your flesh any, don't make any provision for your flesh. Jesus sets us free from sin and also trying to earn forgiveness for our own sin. And so just wrapping up this first section here ask yourself this, are you guilty Are you guilty of being a slave of sin or are you gaining victory over your sin little by little which proves that you are a son of God? Are you guilty of being a slave of sin or are you gaining victory little by little over your sin which proves that you are a son of God? One of the greatest evidences, I think, Of of a person's salvation, that they're truly saved, is is that there's a battle with sin. I'm not shocked when somebody confesses sin to me and says, you know, I I committed this sin, and and does that I don't automatically think, well, they must not be saved. They committed this sin, this great sin. Well, that's not my first thought. I want to see what they're gonna do with that sin. To me, that's the issue. How do they respond? Do they repent? Do they? Do they? Are they broken about it? Do they take steps to 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 put it behind them and to make things right and to confess and to seek reconciliation with all those involved and and, and they set up uh, boundaries and accountability so it doesn't happen again. Right? There's a, there's a fight. There's a battle. It's not that you never sin, but you're definitely going in the right direction. You're gaining on it. And so that was the first thing that Jesus did was he implied here that these these people were slaves to sin. But then secondly, he identified them as sons of Satan. Notice verse 37, he continues on with this, um, this subject of being Abraham's descendants. They had claimed in verse 33, we're Abraham's descendants. And he says in verse 37, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word is no place in you, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. So Jesus is saying, listen, I'm, I'm doing what my father told me to do, right? And you're doing what your father's telling you to do. He hasn't, he hasn't told him who that father is yet, right? But it ain't Abraham. How does he know? He says, by the, the, the mere fact that you're trying to kill me proves that you might be physical descendants of Abraham. I'm not going to argue that point, but you're definitely not spiritual descendants. And we know this was uh, something that Paul picked up in his epistles, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one, what? Inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and its praise is not from men but from God. So, in other words, there's a difference between being a Jew outwardly and being a Jew inwardly. He went on in chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verse 6 But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, not. All the Jews are Jews. You're like, what? Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. In other words, not everybody who claims to be a descendant of Abraham are indeed a descendant of Abraham. And what he's talking about, he clarifies in Galatians chapter 3. He finally comes right out and says it. So you can't mistake what he's getting at here. After this discussion in Galatians chapter 3 about the faith that Abraham had, he believed in God and God credited to him as righteousness, and he goes on, he says in verse 29, this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. In other words, you could be a a Jew and say, I'm a Jew, I'm a descendant of Abraham, and, and that may be true physically, but from the Bible's perspective, from a, from a spiritual perspective, you're not a Jew unless you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And we know that many Jews today reject Christ, right? So they're not, in the true sense, ancestors of Abraham. They're not following his example of placing their faith in the provision that God made for them through the Messiah. The point here is this. Spiritual lineage is not sufficient for salvation. That's what they were banking on, the fact that they were Jews, that they were Abraham's descendants. We're on the fast track to heaven. We've got a, we've got a special relationship with God. We're not Gentiles. Those Gentiles are going to hell, not us Jews. Why? Because we're descendants of Abraham. And they were proud about that. And, and that's why when John the Baptist came, um, he just, he just exploded that whole false philosophy. In, in Luke, Luke chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now, that was pretty bold for John to say to them, You say you're the descendants of Abraham? Big whoop-de-doo. I mean, them were, them were fighting words, right? Uh, but big whoop, you do, and you know what? I would say this practically for us today. You say, you know what? I I I grow I grew up in a Christian home. I've come I've gone to church all my life. I was baptized. I was this. I was confirmed. And and based on the authority of God's word, I'd say big whoop, you do. Big whoop, you do. Your spiritual heritage, your lineage, isn't what gets you into heaven. God has no grandkids. Okay. In other words, you somebody that kind of just just kind of goes in on the coattails of mom and dad. And I'm speaking from someone who has a rich spiritual heritage and I'm so grateful for God's grace in my life to put me in a home, right? I was born into a home where my mom and dad got saved like right around the same time I was born. So all I've ever known is a Christian home. And my mom and dad raised me to love and to fear God and obey Christ and to follow Christ and to live for Christ and I'm so grateful for that. But there was a time in my life that that I had to realize, you know what, this is not just my parents' faith, this is my faith. And I remember making a conscious decision that, you know what, I would be a Christian even if my parents weren't. And I will continue to be a Christian even if my parents defect from the faith because I believe this is true. And so I'm looking out at some young people, some children, right, and you're here this morning and, and, and just you've just been inundated with Christianity. It's all you've ever known. I mean you've got, you, you got Christian mom and dad, you 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 got Christian radio, you got Christian TV, you've got Christian goldfish, you got Christian dog, you got a Christian cat, you go to Christian school, you've been homeschooled, you're all right, it's just Christian, everything, Christian, Christian, Christian. And just because that's been your upbringing doesn't mean you're on the fast track to heaven. Doesn't mean you're you get an automatic in, right? You have to come to know Christ personally. It needs to not be your parents' faith. It needs to be your faith. And and you you need to follow Christ, not because you have to, but because you want to. Jesus, again, is simply saying that he perfectly represented his father while he was here on earth. He did and said exactly exactly what God had commissioned him to say and do. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you are from your father. And, and guess what? You, in the same way, Pharisees, religious leaders, you're, you're doing and saying what your father is telling you to say, but it's not Abraham. It's someone else. And again, he's still kind of holding, holding back his ace in the, he had an ace in his boot, I guess, you know, and he was just holding on to that. And he was going to reveal that here in a, in a, in a moment. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. So again, the Jews continue to insist that Abraham was their father, and so Jesus gave them the benefit of the doubt. He said, Fine. If you are Abraham's descendants, then imitate Abraham's obedient faith. And We have many examples of Abraham's faith and obedience in the book of Romans, in the book of Hebrews, right? He kind of takes a big chunk of that hall of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11 and all the things that Abraham did by faith, by faith, by faith, he obeyed. James chapter 2 talks about how how he believed in God, and again, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In fact, James chapter 2 says that Abraham was God's friend, and he obeyed God, whereas the Jews were were acting like God's enemies here, and they were despising, and they were disobeying God's son. In other words, they they were diametrically opposed. Their conduct was diametrically opposed to the conduct of Abraham. And typically, children look like their parents, right? You can see a, a resemblance in our kids with Kel and I, and we can see resemblance with your kids and, and you. And, and why? Because kids typically look like their parents. They, they actually even maybe walk like their parents. They talk like their parents. They have the same mannerisms as their parents. We have an expression like father, like son, right? Well, Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved, what? Children. So be like your father and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And so the awful way that these Jews were treating God's son proved that, that someone other than God was their real father. We've all had to deal with that um, Th- those billboards or those magazine um, ads or even maybe commercials on TV about this DNA paternity testing, right? And unfortunately, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of question marks on like whose baby is that, whose kid is that, right? And so there's this thing, hey, you wanna know who your parents are? You wanna know whose child that is, who fathered that child? Get some DNA, right? And we'll see if they match. And so the spiritual DNA of these Jewish religious leaders clearly revealed that God was not their father. And yet that didn't stop them from arguing that he was. And notice again how they respond to Jesus, verse 41. They said to him, we are not born of fornication, we have one father, God. Again, I think they were most likely referencing all the The rumors and the stories that had been circulating about Jesus' birth. Here was this um, guy who was claiming to have been born of a virgin. Uh, Yeah, right. We're going to believe that. We know that this guy was uh, conceived in sin out of wedlock. He's an illegitimate child. Well, Jesus made it clear that they were the illegitimate children. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. So the main piece of evidence here that Jesus exposed to prove that God was not their father was that they hated him. I mean, how could you possibly be God's child if you don't love the one person that God loves the most, his own son? And I'll just be frank with you. If you don't love our kids, we're probably not going to get along real good, okay? That's just the way to... And you'd say the same thing, right? If you don't love our kids, we're probably not going to have a really good relationship, Right? This is, a, this is a family affair here, okay? And they're like, how, how can you claim that God your father when you don't love his son? Makes no sense. I heard someone say a number of years ago, and I've never forgot it, I think it's an excellent um, criteria or way to examine yourself to see if you're truly saved. And they simply said this, that the way you know for sure you're a Christian is three things are true of you. Number one, you love Christ. Number two, you hate sin. And number three, you have a desire to obey. So ask yourself that. Do you honestly, can you honestly say that you love Christ? That you honestly love Jesus Christ? And number two, that you hate sin. I mean, you really hate sin. It's not that you never sin, but when you do sin, you hate it. And you want to kill it in your life. And number three, do you have a genuine desire to obey? I mean, do you really, is that the, the desire of your heart that you really want to obey? You don't necessarily obey all the time perfectly, but that's what you really want to do. I was telling somebody the other day that one of the, most encouraging things about one of our kids that gives me hope that they truly know Christ is that I sense that they really do want to obey. They really do want to honor the Lord. They really do want to honor us. They don't, do they do it perfectly? No. But I sense they really do want to do that. That's an encouraging fruit to look for as parents and in our own hearts. And so the Jews, they didn't love Christ, nor did they have a desire to obey his word. In fact, they couldn't even understand what he was saying. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot understand. I think that's another major assurance of your salvation. If you're looking for ways to test yourself, the Bible says examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith, to see if you're a true disciple of Christ. Is ask yourself do you understand? Are you able to understand and comprehend God's word? I mean, when you open up God's word and you ask the Lord, would you give me wisdom? And, and, and I, as I read your word and you open up God's word and you read it, does it make sense to you? Or is it just all a bunch of mumbo jumbo? And it always concerns me when somebody says, you know, I don't get anything out of the Bible. I, I've read, I try to read it and I just don't get anything out of it. I don't even understand what it's saying. Well, my first thought is, Maybe that's because you don't have the Spirit of God in you, because the Bible says the natural man cannot understand the things of God, right, unless the Spirit reveals it to them. Now, it could be that they've never really been trained in how to study the Bible, right? Um, how to observe the Scriptures, how to, how to interpret the Scriptures, how to apply the Scriptures and get the most out of the Scriptures. That could be that, right? They, they, need, they could use some equipping and some training. But, but if, they're, if you're just like reading it, it goes, man, that makes absolutely no sense to me. I can't understand a thing about God's word. Well, then you're not saved. Because if, if you are, the spirit of God is in you and he's leading you into truth. Amen? Well, Jesus finally comes right out and says it. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. The devil is your daddy. Daddy. and you want to do the desires of your father he has he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him where whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies but because i speak the truth you do not you do not believe me the sons of the devil will share the same fate as the devil because they share the same faults as the devil and he's basically exposing the devil's two, Satan's two major sins. He's a murderer and he's a, what? A liar. How is he a murderer? It says he was a murderer from the beginning. I think this is a reference to how he killed Adam and Eve. He killed, if you will, uh, the, the human race. They, they, they spiritually died. They didn't physically die, right? But they spiritually died in that garden. And he also lied to them. He deceived Adam and Eve, and, and uh, he said to, to Eve, you will, you, you'll not die. You're not going to die. Did God say you're going to die if you eat this fruit? You're not going to die. He lied to him. He deceived them. And just like Satan, the Jews had a murderous heart plotting to kill Jesus, and they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They were believing a lie. They didn't even know what the truth was. They they, they lived in this world full of lies. Lying was their native language. Lies just rolled off their tongue. That's another evidence. We're just talking a lot about evidences of salvation. That's another evidence. Are you an habitual liar? That's not the character of somebody who's been transformed by Christ. That's the character of Satan is if you, you're lying all the time. That's, that's a big deal in our house. I mean, you can do a lot of things wrong and, and, and really not get that much in trouble. But you lie, you get in big trouble in our house. Because lying is, there's nothing you can do that is more satanic than murdering and lying we're talking about ramping up where lying goes in the category of sin, right? And I joke with people when when I when I just kid with them about they're not telling the truth, I say, "You know where liars go, don't you?" Because Revelation is very clear. It's got this list of and 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 the lake of fire, there'll be the murderers and the adulterers and the fornicators and the liars. You're like, "Whoa, how did that get in that <laughs> list of sins?" Right? Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Uh, come on, I just told one little lie, right? It's a serious sin in God's eyes. Why? Because it's satanic. And it may be that you're, the reason why you lie so much is because you're a son of Satan. You're a child of Satan and you're not a child of God. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Now, I just want you to know, I would never have the guts <laughs> to get up in front of a group of people and say, hey, which one of you convicts me of sin? Come on, I'm your pastor. What, who, who, who can convict me? I don't want to see. I'd be, uh, I'd be scared to do that because I'd be, the hands would start, oh yeah, I, I got one, Ken. I know another area of sin in your life, right? You'd be ashamed. You wouldn't do that, would you? Who, who, who could convict me of any sin? People would start saying, well, I'll tell you one area. <laughs> You're not. You probably don't wear this, but I, I see this, right? Well, why? Why is that? Why? How could Jesus say this? Because He was perfect. He never sinned. He was what theologians call impeccable, sinless perfection. Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. Hebrews four fifteen. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. First Peter 2:22, "Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth." So only a perfect person would ever dare ask this question, "Who convicts me of sin?" And obviously no one could provide any evidence that he was guilty of any sin, So he says like, "Hey, so why don't you believe me?" And then verse 47, he says, "He who is of God, hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear me, because you are not of God. Bottom line, the reason why there's this huge disconnect between you and me, guys, is because you are not of God. I'm of God, and you're not. His point is, a true child of God hears and obeys God's word, but a child of Satan doesn't care about the word of God. And because they didn't recognize God's voice speaking in Jesus, through Jesus, it's plain to see that these, these Jews, they weren't not God's kids. They were Satan's kids. And if I could just get real practical, I mean, how does this relate to us, okay? I would just say this, that if you're sitting here this morning and you could care less about what's being said right now, like, you just don't care. Like, you're checked out. You've been checked out. And you've been kind of messing with the people around you. You've been on your phone, whatever. You've been, you're thinking about what's going to happen this afternoon, what you've got to go to this, do this week. You, you are just not at all interested in what's happening here. Then that may be evidence that you are of your father, the devil. You think about that. I mean, children of God... When, when God's word is, is proclaimed, they're, they're, they're keyed in, right? They're listening because they want to hear what God has to say to them. They care about what their daddy has to say so they can be who their daddy wants them to be. But a son of Satan's like, like, oh, oh, that's that preaching stuff again. Uh, I'm going to take a nap. Well, that's not evidence of a child of God. And so ask yourself, are you guilty of being a son of Satan or do you love Christ and do you listen to his word which proves you are a son of God? Do you love Christ and do you love his word? Slave of sin, son of Satan. Two charges you never, ever want to be accused of. I want you to all turn to one more passage as we wrap this up because we know that this is not the only time John communicated to us. God used John to communicate. He also um, communicated to us in 1 John chapter 3 and he picks up this theme here and what he says here in 1 John chapter 3 really just brings these two ideas being a slave of sin and a, and a and a son of Satan together, and he gives us a way to know for sure which one we are. Listen to what he says: First John chapter three verse four. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. See the similar theme here? Uh, Him coming to take away sin, to free us from sin. There was no sin in him. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, time out. You're like, whoa. Is he saying that if I sin then I'm not a child of God. Is that how we are to interpret what what he's saying here? If we interpreted that that way, would that be consistent with the rest of Scripture? Do we see from other places in Scripture that Christians, true Christians, continue to sin? Do we see that? Yes. So we know he can't mean that if you're truly a child of God, you will never ever sin again. That's not what he's teaching. Okay, having said that, look at verse 10. By this... The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. In other words, there should be nobody in here this morning going, well, I just don't know. It's just not really clear. No, it says it's obvious who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now again, the word that I've emphasized over and over again, because John emphasizes it over and over again, is the word what? Practice. What does it mean to practice something? It means you do it over and over and over and over and over until it becomes a habit, right? And so he's saying, listen, if you are living a habitual lifestyle of sin, you are not a child of God. You're a child of the devil. And you're like, wow, man, but I sin so much. So, does that mean I'm not saved? Let me try to make it simple. And I think those of you that know Christ, you've seen this pattern in your life. Before you came to Christ, this was your life sin, 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 sin. All right, you're just sinning all the time, it's all you could do. Then you come to Christ, you recognize you're a sinner who's destined for hell, you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, your sins can be forgiven, you you repent of your sin, and you place your faith in Christ, and you commit your life to follow him the rest of your life, and what happens? You sin, 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 sin. You see what's happening there? There's a decreasing frequency of sin in your life. That's what you should see In your life, if you're a true Christian, if the Spirit of God is in you, there should be a decreasing frequency of sin in your life, and there should be an increasing frequency of righteousness in your life. In other words, you should be doing the wrong thing less and less and doing the right thing more and more. That's characteristic of a believer. And listen, I I still sin. I sin a lot every day but by God's grace, I can honestly say that I do see a decreasing frequency of sin in my life, right? And an increasing frequency of righteousness in my life. The, the wrench in this whole thing is the closer you get to Christ, the more aware you are of your sin. So oftentimes you feel like you're going backwards. You know what I mean? Like, why? It's like I see my sin more than ever now. I'm more of a, I see I'm more of a sinner than I ever was. Well, that's, that's good news. That's good news. Because that means you're coming more and more into the presence of His holiness. The searchlight of, of His holiness is shining on you, and you're seeing more of your sin, so you can deal with it. And you can be more like Him. Listen, you can't read John's gospel. You can't read John's epistles and believe in universalism or in the universal fatherhood of God, in other words, that we're all God's children we're all going to heaven someday, that's just not true. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil, and God's children are those who humbly admit that they're a slave of sin, and they willingly repent of their disobedience against God and his word, and they sincerely believe that Jesus Christ is the sinless sacrifice that God sent to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross, and they truly commit their lives to follow and obey him as their Lord and master. That is a child of God. And this morning, if you're willing to face the truth about your bondage to sin and and, and willing to admit that Jesus Christ is the only way to escape that bondage, then you can experience what John Wesley described in that famous hymn, And Can It Be, when he said this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's a perfect summary of what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 8. Father we thank you for your word. We thank you for how straightforward it is. It doesn't beat around the bush. It just says it like it is and sometimes it's hard to hear. But Lord, I trust that as we're faithful to explain the words of Christ that they will have their intended impact in in everyone's heart and life. Lord, I know there are, there are, there are children of Satan here this morning. There are sons of Satan, daughters of Satan who who are slaves to sin. And and uh The fact that they're slaves to their sin proves that they're sons of Satan. And I just pray that your spirit would convict them right now and that they would just have a desire to be free, truly free from their sin. And they would just want to repent and they would want to come to Christ and rely on him to change them and to transform their lives and that they would want to experience the freedom that he promises to those who abide in him. And Lord, for the rest of us who, who have already experienced that freedom, we so often will go back under bondage, and Lord, we are, are so foolish when we do that, and I just pray that you would help us to uh, claim the victory that we have in Christ, that he secured for us on the cross, that we would, with the Spirit's help, mortify those remaining sins in our lives, and Lord, that we would find great joy this week in sharing with others how they can be free from that wicked slave master of sin and Satan. Lord, that we could walk around with a key, as it were, unlocking jail cells, prison cells, and letting people out with the gospel, the good news of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.